give me the odds of you drawing up some play on December 31st, the night before the game, that might make its way into the plan. I mean, is that at all a possibility, even though you've had, at that point, like 28, 29 days to prepare for the opponent? There's a fair chance of that happening. Fair. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to put a percentage on it. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. We hope that you are having a tremendous start to your holiday season. And if you are drawing up plays on a note card like Steve Sarkeesian, then submit it to your favorite school because I want to see some creativity as we get into the pre-Christmas bowl games that we will break down a little bit today. Not going to dive too deep into it. We're still going through the process of previewing our playoff teams. Today, it's the Texas Longhorns. Last but not least, we did Washington on Monday, we did Bama last Thursday, and we did Michigan on the Monday before that. So if you've missed any of those breakdowns, go back. We had Brock Heward to discuss what's going on with Washington. Today, we have Steve Sarkeesian to help discuss what's going on with the Texas Longhorns. But we will go line by line. How did they get here? What did they do well? And some tendencies for them both offensively and defensively. We will also give you a tidbit or two about some of the bowl games being played this week. Some nuggets that you might like if you want to have a little action on the game. We'll tell you a couple trends that you might want to be mindful of before you dive into the deep end of the pool. And then finally, the calendar has been a little bit problematic. I have a suggestion for cleaning up when you can enter the transfer portal. I'm not saying that it's a foolproof plan. I'm not saying it's ideal, but I do think it would clean up this time of the year when everything just feels so insanely chaotic. So that's just a little thing that I'm going to allow you to kind of dabble with. And I'd love to get your take on it as well, because I don't think there's a way to totally address the issues that the transfer portal can present. But I do think solidifying it in one part of the calendar would be beneficial for college football down the road. All of that is coming up, but we will get things kicked off here with a visit with the head coach of the Texas Longhorns, Steve Sarkeesian. He's back on the show. He's coach Steve Sarkeesian. He's now led the Texas Longhorns to the college football playoff. Coach, we appreciate you, man. If you could sum up this season, how would you sum it up? Wow. Uh, that, was a, that was a great start to the, to the question right there, Greg. Kind of kick it off. I, I guess probably the biggest thing is... Um, just really proud of our players, you know, proud would probably be the best word to describe it um, on a lot of fronts. You know, I, I think back to our first year and then our second year and now into our third year. And a lot of those players that have been with us through those three years and the fact that in this day and age of college football um, that you can move on and leave and transfer when, when things aren't going your way, or maybe you, you don't see the you know instant success that you want to have as a program, you know, these guys stuck with us. And then I think that carried over in the way that we played this year. There were some tough games, some tough fourth quarters uh, that we had to find a way to win. And we had to find a way to win those games in, in different, um, you know, styles and fashions. Um, and it was our resiliency of our team again, of, of hanging in there and finding a way to win. So as a coach, that, that's what makes you proud, you know, that these guys believed in what we were doing, um, and then believed in game to, to, you know, finish those ball games in tight moments. When you looked at the roster coming into this season and we visited in the summer, I know you had high expectations. You embraced those expectations. You were excited about what this team could do. 
but if there's an area in which you feel like maybe you are ahead of schedule or maybe something you didn't anticipate in June that's now come to fruition, what would you say that was? Well, I think, you know, offensively, our ability to run the football, um, yeah. you know, coming in, coming into the year, we didn't know exactly what we were going to have. You know, when you lose two NFL running backs, um, you know, in Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson, um, we knew we had a pretty good room, but you, you, you never quite know. And, you know, we started out with Cedric Baxter as the frontline starter. You know, he kind of gets nicked up and Jonathan Brooks kind of really takes over and has a tremendous year. Um, and we were running the ball extremely well and he ends up, you know, tearing his ACL against TCU. And then it's like, now what are we going to do running the ball? And sure enough, Cedric Baxter's healthy again. He's playing well. Jaden blue bursts onto the scene and Keelan Robinson's performed really well. So we really haven't skipped a beat. I think we were averaging over 200 yards rushing in our last two ball games, um, with those three guys doing it. So I think for us as a team, that's a really big component to what we do. Our ability to control the football, uh, our ability to, to play a physical brand of football. And that sets up so many things we like to do in the passing game. Uh, but it also keeps our defense off the field. Some keeps them fresh. And so that component of our team, uh, was one that maybe had a question mark before the season, had a little question mark during the season, but uh, has continued to, to, to come through for us. As you look at the receiver room, it's it's really no surprise you you got your three. <laughs> it's, uh, but Ad Mitchell, I think, is so far, I, I guess, so far past what I anticipated from him as far as stretching the field vertically, making big plays and big moments. He's always done that. Xavier Worthy's been outstanding. I know he's a little banged up in the last game, but all season long he's been so reliable. And Whittington, same way. But JT Sanders, his growth has been massive as well. So as far as the weapons are concerned, how are things stacking up at the moment? Well, I, I think that part's been great for us. You know, I felt like coming out of last season, we got a little too predictable of where that ball was going in the passing game. And I thought that that put a lot of stress on Quinn. And we just got to keep finding what we have to get the ball to Xavier or we're not going to be able to create explosive plays. And so the addition of AD, to your point, I think has been really helpful in that, man, that safety wants to cheat to Worthy and, and AD's got those one-on-ones. He, he can make those plays. And now you want to play some split safety on us. And now Whittington and, and JT Sanders can can exploit you kind of in that intermediate in the middle of the field range. And so it's been very complimentary. Uh, I think Quinn's grasp and, and comfort level with all those guys has been big. Um, and the health of those guys has been big. You know, when, when JT got the, got the high ankle sprain against Kansas, yeah. I thought it really affected him for almost two months. And, and, and now the last two weeks, he's back to healthy again. I think it showed in the Big 12 championship game. When he's healthy, uh, he's a really tough matchup for linebackers and safeties. Yeah, he's he's phenomenal. Uh, and watching him in one-on-ones, if I were a DC, I'd have some sleepless nights trying to figure out who's got him on a week-to-week basis. The defense has been excellent all year, especially in the front seven. But there have been some growing pains in the back end. It feels like, you look, you've put a couple of freshmen in there, one in particular, the targeting call. I still can't believe he's not going to be available for the first half of this game. But you've put some young guys back there and have solidified that group to an extent. So how would you assess the improvement in the back end that we've seen in the latter part of the year? Yeah, I think something that we had to, um, that we, where we've grown as a team, you know, we really pride ourselves in our ability to start games and our ability to, to own the game plan and own the openers and, and come out and, and really try to jump on people. 
And from a, from a defensive perspective, understanding, hey, when we get the lead, they have to throw the ball. Right. And just because they have to throw the ball doesn't mean that we have to concede completions. And I think that our ability to stay aggressive and confident in coverage uh, has been has been big for us, and that allows that pass rush to get home. Um, but I do think a couple of those young guys you referenced in Derek Williams and, and Manny Muhammad at corner, uh, those two guys play the game with a lot of confidence. Uh, they've made plays on the ball. Our ability, to, again, the last couple of weeks, I think we've had, I think, three three interceptions or so, so we're, we're making plays on the ball. Um, but that's that's doing it with confidence, and that's allowing, because of that confidence, that pass rush to affect the quarterback. Yeah, I mean, as many as five freshmen on the field at one time, uh, occasionally on defense. Even <laughs> I know that's not that's not a great feeling, but when they have that much talent, it does make it a little bit easier as a coach, as I would imagine. When you look at this matchup, coach, and you assess Washington, uh, I think in a lot of ways they're they're somewhat similar with how they can attack you and the personnel and the matchups that they can create and and just how multiple they can be offensively. Um, not traditional two tight end, 12 personnel as much as you guys, but they do have some things that are comparable as you're getting prepared. Defensive structure, a lot of quarters coverage, things like that. So how has practice against your own guys actually helped you in preparing for this game coming up in the Sugar Bowl? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always when you, you have a month, we have a month, right? To, <laughs> to play and that, which is, which is so odd, right? Because of the structure of how spring ball goes and how training camp goes. And then ultimately how the season goes now that you have a month. And, and sometimes when you just get right into game plan mode, um, as you know, that can become monotonous as a player. Like, yeah. man, okay, we're going to run the same play again against the same defense again. So really in the front end of practices in our, in our prep, we didn't even install game plans and mm. we didn't, we didn't get into, you know, how we're going to defend Washington or how we're going to attack Washington. We kind of put the ball down and, and played and we tried to keep our competitive juices going. Uh, and that was helpful in that structurally we are similar on both sides of the ball. It allowed our guys to just go play football, stay competitive, feel the speed and physicality of the game. And now we're, we're just starting to transition to actual game plan mode. Now, Little did our players know some of those things we were doing, uh, in those, in those kind of scrimmage type settings are things that we want to do in the ball game, but it, it won't feel so monotonous to them that way. So I do think it's helpful. Um, because in the end, I want our guys to be sharp and fast and physical, uh, but also energized to play in this ball game. What, what does the calendar look like for you? You mentioned flipping the switch and now turning your attention into game planning mode. I believe there's 15 practices or so, depending on what time the bowl is played and what day the bowl is played. So how do you structure your postseason to make sure you're peaking at the right time? Yeah, you know what, what we did coming out of the Big 12 championship, I, I felt like we needed to get healthy. You know, we had a lot of guys nicked up. You and you you referenced Xavier, uh, him coming out of that game. Oddly enough, we've had a little bit of a flu bug there for, for mm. about 10 days. I think the entire country's had it. Uh, so we had guys kind of in and out. And, and all we really did was focus those first 10 or so days on was running and lifting and finishing finals, which I'm, I'm really pumped about. We just got the highest team GPA uh, since it's been recorded in season for Texas football. So wow. that correlation, who we are in, uh, on the field is who we are in the classroom, uh, which I think is great. Um, but then we started to, to get back to practice and those practices early on were more of your training camp or spring ball type practices where it was a lot of good on good work of just getting our, our competitive juices flowing. 
And now as we've started this week, now we're getting into game plan mode and, and now we're getting the installation. Now we're getting the scouting reports. Uh, now we're doing the walkthroughs and the whys and the checks and the things of that nature. Um, and we'll do that up through the 22nd. And then after the 22nd practice, I'm going to send these guys home for Christmas and they're going to get a, they're going to get a couple, three days for Christmas. We'll bring them back and we'll start back up practice on the 26th and then head to New Orleans on the 27th uh, and then play the ball game the night of the first. I, I still don't really know how we were able to get you on the show. Um, full disclosure, it was a Hail Mary. Uh, glad, luckily for us, you and I are, are pretty good buddies. John Bianco, your SID is amazing as well. But you have about 5,000 things going on right now between transfer portal and signing day and, and preparing for a game. So how do you manage that aspect of it? I mean, you got to win the championship. I mean, your best recruiting pitch is, hey, see the ring? Like, I get that. But how, how do you manage that in addition to preparing your team to play in a championship setting? Well, those, those two weeks at, coming out of that the championship weekend – were uh were pretty hectic, right? And when you think about, hey, I'm trying to do with early signing period now, you're trying to do home visits with all of the kids that are either committed to you, you're trying to get committed to you to sign uh in December. Then the portal hits and all these guys are 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 in the portal and you're talking to your own players who are thinking about going in the portal. Who are you trying to recruit? How do you evaluate those players? Um you've got now in this day and age of college football, you got a lot of coaches that are getting hired earlier and earlier our linebacker coach Jeff Choate just got the the Nevada head coaching job and so helping him through that of what that looks like looking for replacements for him uh all the meanwhile on every flight that I'm on I'm I'm studying Washington tape uh trying to devise a game plan to your point that gives us the best opportunity to be successful but I'd much rather have it this way than than anybody else has got it right to to be in the college football playoff and uh, have a really good team uh, to be able to recruit really good players and the idea that our coaches are getting opportunities uh, because we are doing well, uh, that's a, that's a much better place to sit than, uh, than when you're not going to a bowl game or the bowl game that you're in is earlier in December and, and you're really scrambling. So uh, we're very fortunate, um, like I said, and I think we've got really good people in place as well that I can, that I can trust to do their job and that I don't have, feel like I have to micromanage and do everything. Uh, lastly, coach, and we'll get you out of here on this. You famously said for many, many years, hey, the hay's never in the barn as it relates to game planning and prep. So what are the odds? Just give me the odds of you drawing up some play on December 31st, the night before the game that might make its way into the plan. I mean, is that at all a possibility, even though you've had at that point like 28, 29 days to prepare for the opponent? There's a fair chance of that happening. Fair. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to put a percentage on it. But here's the thing, you know, Greg, like, and you know me well enough on this. I'm a huge college football fan. I'm a huge football fan in general. And so for me, you know, a lot of people go to bowl games and they want to go have dinner and do all this. What I want to do when I have downtime is sit in my room, probably order a little bit of room service, my wife and kids and whoever is in town and put the games on. And a lot of times when you're watching other games, they spurn ideas, yeah. right? That not necessarily I want, I want to run that play exactly how somebody just did it, but man, that would be pretty cool if we ran it off of something that's already in our game plan. And so it's not necessarily going to be a brand new thought that might come up the day before the game, but it could be something off of something that we already have in, in the ball game.
It's a copycat game, that's for sure, man. So, hey, maybe we'll get some real creative plays in some of the New Year's Six games leading up to the big game that you guys will play on January 1st. Coach, we can't tell you how much we appreciate the time. We so look forward to to seeing you in New Orleans and being on the call for that game. It's quite an honor for us, and, and we look forward to seeing you guys put your best foot forward. Appreciate it, Ray. Fired up to see you too as well, man. Well, it might not be the most normal way of organizing the show. We just had a really nice conversation with Steve Sarkeesian, who's going to be coaching this team, but in an effort to just try to move him along. The fact that he was able to carve out 12, 13 minutes for us is amazing, and we are so grateful to him for that. But let's allow ourselves now to take just one step deeper into the Texas Longhorns. I know this team really well. Uh, have studied this team a lot this season. I don't know why, just with where their games fell on the calendar. We called their game against Kansas. We called their game against Oklahoma State. I think I've seen every single snap they've played this year on both sides of the ball. Uh, outside of Alabama, amongst the four playoff teams, it's the team I know the best. So I feel really good about this breakdown. Hopefully you guys will get something from it. few things you need to know about their offense, okay? Their offense is extremely good, extremely good. I know I'm not breaking any news there, but the way they lay things out, I think Steve Sarkeesian is as thoughtful a play caller as there is in the sport. Uh, being able to set things up. There's two guys that I really admire, really admire how they call plays. Two that like, I mean, they are just, they're put on this earth to do that. It's Mike Norvell at Florida State and Steve Sarkeesian. And part of what makes them elite is being able to connect plays so you run a run play. And then you have a play action off of the run play. And then you have a play action double move off of that play action play. And then you have a quick screen that looks the exact same. Like there are certain layers that he'll get to throughout the course of the game and they're all very methodically sorted out. So that is, I think, his best attribute is being able to thoughtfully attack, make things look similar so the defense will acknowledge a tendency and then boom, he breaks that tendency with the next layer of the concept. So he's amazing when it comes to that. A lot of their offense is predicated off of motion. Around 45% of their offensive plays are in motion at the snap. That doesn't include shifts. That's on the snap, there is a guy on the move. That's the 15th highest number in college football. You'd also be a little surprised to know that uh, a vast majority of their passing attack is actually not play action, but it's actually RPO. That is, I think, a little bit different. They have the third highest RPO percentage in college football behind Oklahoma State and USC. USC is number one in the Power Five. Oklahoma State is two. Texas is number three. So a lot of what looks like play action maybe isn't play action. It's actually a run play, but you could spit it out to a receiver if the look defensively presents itself. Another thing, too, is a lot of their damage is actually done after the catch. You would think Texas, hard play action, throw it downfield, make things happen. Actually, about 58% of their receiving yardage comes after the catch. That's the 15th highest in the FBS as well. They have excellent weapons on the perimeter, but we'll start with their quarterback, Quinn Ewers, who I think has grown drastically over the course of his two-year stint as the starter for the Longhorns. He does a great job of getting the ball out quickly, and he does a really good job, too. When he escapes the pocket, he keeps his eyes downfield. He's actually much better on the move than he was at any point last year. He has a 96.4 QBR. That's the fourth highest among qualifying quarterbacks 
outside the pocket. He's also excellent in the fourth quarter. He's number one in the FBS in fourth quarter QBR. And in the red zone, that's the area where they've struggled offensively. He hasn't been quite as good. They need to run the ball really well down there. And his QBR in the red zone is just 26. That's 107th in the FBS. So he's taken a great leap this year in conceptual understanding. He gets the ball out quick. He anticipates throws. He's oftentimes throwing it before the receiver even gets out of the break. That's even on downfield throws. So he does a really good job in the offense and understand how he fits. And he's also sneaky good when it comes to scrambling. Not an elite runner by any stretch, but he can keep you honest and has done that a few times throughout the course of the season. The running backs, as Coach Sarkeesian talked about a moment ago, it's a really deep and underappreciated group. Jonathan Brooks was incredible, among the best backs in college football before he got injured against Kansas State. But stepping in to fill that void has really been a three-headed monster. C.J. Baxter's the lead back. Jaden Blue's gotten more and more as the game's gone along, and he's actually their best back as far as yards after contact is concerned. Not really a make-you-miss guy, but he's got a great hesitation step before he one-cuts and bowls you over. Then another guy that had a big role in the Big 12 title game is Keelan Robinson. He's pretty dang good. Pretty good out of the backfield, too, as a receiver. He's got great wiggle. So if he's... Out in space, he's a problem because he can really make you miss. At wide receiver, it's really three guys. You have Xavier Worthy, who's a little banged up in the Big 12 title game, but hopefully he'll be at 100%, have no limitations in the semifinal game. You have A.D. Mitchell, who's got great length and a vast majority of his looks come in the end zone. He leads the team in red zone targets. He also leads the team in end zone targets. So the closer they get to the end zone, the more likely it is that A.D. Mitchell's going to be on the receiving end. Jordan Whittington's a guy that can really do it all. He's very reliable and he's better after the catch than most people realize. And then JT Sanders, I think, is the matchup nightmare that you don't want to face if he's in a one-on-one situation against a linebacker or safety. So those four guys really make up a vast majority of what they do through the year. And then along the offensive line, it's a really good group. When you look at how long Quinn Ewers has before the first pressure arrives, it's 3.19 seconds. That's the fourth longest in the FBS. UTEP, Bama, and Utah are the only three that have given their quarterback more time before that initial pressure gets home. They only allow pressure on just 25% of Quinn Ewers' dropbacks. That's fifth in the FBS. So the offensive line across the board has done a really good job all season long. Moving over to the defensive side of the football. I think they are excellent on that side of the ball. They have some headliners, though, that we will start with. It starts up front. If you can handle their defensive tackles, you have a chance. Most teams can't. Byron Murphy and Tavondre Sweat. Tavondre Sweat recently won the Outland Award as the best down lineman in the sport. Understandable. I think Byron Murphy might even be a little bit more disruptive in a pass rush situation. You think about Washington. Washington's going to be dropping Michael Penix back. So Byron Murphy might actually have more of an impact on this game than Tavondre Sweat. But he is a run-stopping monster up the middle of that defense. 9% of the runs he faces, he stops at the line of the scrimmage. That's how good he is. He can provide a little pass rush, but it's more moving offensive linemen back. There is an undersized center in the game for Washington and Parker Brailsford, who's just 275 pounds. So that will be a matchup that you watch. I can't imagine a scenario in which Washington wants their center Brailsford in a one-on-one situation with either of these two guys. But if that does occur, that is advantage Texas there on the interior. I think their edges are much better than people realize. Ethan Burke 
has really seen snaps increase at times against pass-happy offenses, Oklahoma being the best example. He had 49 snaps against OU. I think he'll play quite a bit against this Washington unit, knowing that they're going to be a group that wants to snap it and try to push the ball down the field. He also played 40-plus snaps against TCU and Houston. All offenses that are somewhat resemble, somewhat resemble what Washington does. So I think Ethan Burke could have a big role in this game. He wears number 91. Baron Sorrell, I think at times has been dominant this year. The Kansas State game in particular, he was excellent in that game, had five pressures on just 31 dropbacks and a couple sacks. So Baron Sorrell is really good as well. So keep an eye on him. And then you'll see some other guys that will get to the end of the line of scrimmage in obvious passing situations that can create some problems for him in the pass rush. Anthony Hill, number zero, is probably the best example of that. But don't sleep on Jet Bush, too. He does a pretty good job on the other side. So their edges are really good. They're good in the interior. I think it's as deep of a defensive line group as you'll see in the sport, even though their edges don't get enough love. All the love goes to the tackles. Understandably so. Those guys are massive difference makers. At the second level, you have Jalen Ford, who is unbelievable. Uh, going into the Big 12 title game, he had 665 snaps played defensively. That was 154 more than the second most snaps played on the team. I mean, this guy is always in the middle of the defense. He's very active. He has a great job of reading quarterbacks' eyes. He has made a couple plays on the ball this year, so you always got to be mindful with where number 41 is. He's a tackling machine that does a really good job making sure his presence is felt in pretty much every single game. We already talked about some of the other guys at the second level, including Anthony Hill. He'll play an awful lot. They do have quite a few freshmen that will be on the field at times. You heard Steve Sarkeesian mention Malik Muhammad, but Derek Williams at safety, he's probably their best cover safety. Anthony Hill, who I referenced already, uh, Leon Galeafau, they have a bunch of guys that are playing significant snaps on that side of the ball that are freshmen. So these guys are probably just operating under the assumption that freshmen get better over bowl practice. They're probably going to be better the next time out than they were the last time out. And that's a scary thing because they've been pretty good already this year. At safety, that's where I think they might have the biggest headaches. They have good players, but as far as coverage is concerned, those guys have at times had some issues giving up big plays. Derek Williams, the freshman, he'll miss the first half with the targeting. But if he gets in there in the second half, you'll be able to probably feel his presence. He's excellent in coverage and does a really good job. Jaron Thompson, a little bit of a liability on the deep ball. He's a guy that I would be mindful of if I were Texas. I don't want him in one-on-one, especially against Rome Adunze in a one-on-one situation. That would not be ideal for the Longhorns. Jade Barron at nickel is really good. He's a very confident player, extremely confident player. He'll take chances. He'll jump routes. Sometimes those things pay off and sometimes they don't, but he is extremely confident in his own abilities. And it's very evident with how he covers some of the guys that he'll face there in the slot. And then on the outside, you have a couple of guys that have really kind of been in and out. Terrence Brooks has been pretty steady all year long. Malik Muhammad has really stepped up as the season's gone along in the absence of Ryan Watts, who has missed some time with some injuries at times this year. So top to bottom, front seven defensively, elite. Back end, occasional liabilities, but you heard Steve Sarkeesian reference it. A lot of the yardage given up is circumstantial yardage, meaning it's throw-a-thon for the opposing team because they're in a big hole. So maybe those numbers are a little bit inflated. But this is an excellent group that is extremely well-built from the inside out. They're built like Bama. They're built like Michigan. They're built like the best teams in college football. They are built 
with the offensive and defensive lines in mind, and they get better and better as the, as the, the wideouts and company get better. So this is an elite football team that's balanced and create a lot of issues for you both offensively and defensively. Over the last few weeks, there have been a lot of people that have asked me about the current college football calendar. I'll sum it up in one word. Disastrous. It is. It's awful that as of this moment, there are guys that are playing in bowl games for their team. Some are playoff games. Some are pre-Christmas bowl games that are all kind of sitting there waiting to potentially jump in the portal. Maybe in some cases they already have jumped in the portal. And right now for some of these guys, let's use Malik Murphy as an example. Since a lot of our show today has been dedicated to the Texas Longhorns, Malik Murphy had no choice but to go in the portal because of how the calendar is currently operating for college football players. He had to go in because if he didn't go in, he might not have a home to go to on the other side. So he has to forego the opportunity to play in a playoff game potentially in an effort to find what's best for him down the road. Now, I don't agree with the emo- with the move. I think you finish what you started, but I'm old and I'm yelling at clouds. So I understand the challenges that these players are currently dealing with, but I think it's a pretty simple solution. It's not going to be popular. It's not going to be something that a lot of you listening to this show will be on board with, but I think the portal is easily solvable. And I think that if they were to implement my recommendation, we would see a lot less moves and we'd see a lot less mistakes. I also think in a roundabout way, it would help high school recruiting down the road. Here's what I would do. Right now, the portal opens for a handful of weeks beginning at the beginning of December or so, thereabouts. It's open for four weeks or whatever it is, six weeks total over the course of the year. It's a couple weeks there in May too when it opens. What I suggest, and a lot of these guys are going because they want to take advantage of NIL opportunities, totally support that. I would structure it by making our fiscal year as a college football fan program player, our fiscal year should be from June 1st until April 30th. You're going to say that's not 12 months. I get that. Want to know why? Because May is for the chaos. It's for the chaos. That's the time when you can enter the portal as a player. I would not do the portal opening in December. I would move it all to May. And here's why I think this would be beneficial. One, it would allow you to have a little bit more clarity, a little bit more clarity on when guys are going to be available, when games are actually being played. Okay. Right now, I mean, so many teams are going into a bowl game without their first, second, in some cases, third string quarterback having to start a fourth string guy or a guy that's already in the portal that doesn't really even want to play but has to because there's really no choice. There's literally no availability. We saw a couple years ago, LSU take a wide receiver and start him a quarterback for their bowl game. That's not good for anybody. So I would just not have the portal available until May. That's number one. Number two, I think it would put a priority on high school recruiting. You're going to say, well, how? Because a lot of the high school guys, not all, but several, are choosing to enroll mid-year. And if you enroll mid-year, that would actually give you an advantage 
to go and solidify a job or a role over the course of spring practices that would basically allow you to get more comfortable than the incoming transfers who would be arriving after spring practice. So I think it would re-emphasize the high school recruiting for a lot of programs that have abandoned it, not completely, but to an extent they've abandoned it in favor of prioritizing portal players. Number three, here's what I think would also be advantageous. I think it would give kids more clarity as to whether or not they're making a good decision. I think at the end of the season, you're emotional. You're probably looking at it and saying, I didn't get to play as much as I wanted. I didn't like how the season went. I don't like my coach. I don't like my new coach. There's a new coach coming in. I don't like him. Well, how do you know that new coach might actually be better for you down the road? So at least gives you a 15 practice period in the spring to assess whether or not, hey, is this the right place for me? So in May, you put your name in because you didn't like how spring went. And then you have a full calendar year to absorb that new university, that new place, to figure out whether or not that's the best place for you to continue your athletic career. I also think at the same time, this could be a little bit beneficial to creating more clarity from an NIL standpoint. Right now, guys are going in the portal after an excellent year, and they're leveraging their own school. And as a result, a lot of guys are left twisting in the wind that are on the roster because they don't know what their NIL situation is going to be because the guy that just ended the portal that's leveraging up might be taking a bigger percentage of the pot to begin with. But if that had to wait all the way until May, maybe you'd have a little bit more clarity at that point as well. So I know it's a kind of controversial conversation to be had, but ultimately down the road, my goal is to discourage guys going in the portal and to encourage players and coaches to just see it through. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But see it through because you just never know what might come up in a spring practice setting if you just stick around. Maybe you go from being an afterthought to a star. We've seen it happen multiple times over the course of spring practices for the entirety of college football. So I would just open the portal in May. If you're a graduate, then by all means, go in the portal whatever you want. But that also incentivizes graduation, which should be of the utmost importance when considering where we're at in college athletics. So I would just open the portal in May. I'd do away with the portal in December. And I think that would give us a little bit more clarity as far as rosters are concerned, especially as it relates to availability in bowl games. We will revisit recruiting portal at the moment. The recruiting window is open. Classes are in flux. Guys are flipping at the last minute. Right now, it wouldn't be in our best interest to focus on what could happen at any point over the next couple of days. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the games that are actually going to be played in the next couple of days. Because I can tell you with certainty, there is a game on Thursday, there's a game on Friday, there's a game on Saturday, and there's a bunch of games on Saturday, by the way. So I'm going to give you a couple of gambling trends that might maybe just make you a couple bucks as we get ready to head into what should be a pretty exciting weekend of college football. Let's get started with today's action. The roofclaim.com Boca Raton Bowl. That is USF against Syracuse. Syracuse, a slight favorite at the moment. Syracuse is 5-0 and against the spread in the last five bowl games. Only Duke and Navy have a longer such cover streak 
in bowl games. They have six each, by the way. But USF is 8-2 and two against the spread in their last 10 games against the Orange. So something just to be mindful of. Another thing, too, USF is 10-1 and one against the spread with seven-plus days of rest since 2020. That's the fourth best in college football over that span. How is that applicable? I don't know, because Alec Golish is in his first year at USF, but why not? <laughs> Use it and don't put maybe a ton of stock into it, but worth noting as well. Tomorrow, we have some action in the Union Home Mortgage Gasparilla Bowl. Georgia Tech and UCF actually really like this bowl game. A lot of speed on the field for both teams. UCF is 0-5 against the spread in their last five games as a favorite. They're a slight favorite in this game. And Georgia Tech over the over is 9-3 and in games this year. That's the second highest over percentage in the FBS. So that would indicate that it's going to be a bit of a track meet, potentially could be a bit of a shootout. And it would also indicate that Georgia Tech's eight and two against the spread in the last four games or in their last 10 games following a loss. They're actually four and oh in their last four. So they've done pretty good bouncing back from disappointment and they played well against the Georgia Bulldogs in clean old fashioned hate at the end of the regular season. Saturday's action, full slate. Let's get started with the 76 Birmingham Bowl, where Troy is a slight favorite right now over the Duke Blue Devils. Duke has covered in six straight bowl games. It's tied with Navy for the longest active cover streak. Told you that a moment ago. And Troy is just 1-4 and four against the spread this year against teams with a winning record. Another thing for Duke, the over is hitting four straight games. That's the fourth longest active cover streak on the over in college football. Camellia Bowl. Featuring Arkansas State and Northern Illinois. Arkansas State is a slight favorite, but it's really more of a toss-up at the moment. Northern Illinois is one and six against the spread in bowl games since 2012. And Arkansas State is four and one against the spread in their last five games. The Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. This is James Madison against Air Force. Very interesting matchup here. Thought the total was a little high, knowing that both teams really, really sound on the defensive side. I think Air Force will make this thing very interesting. They've covered in four straight bowl games. They're 0-3 against the spread against AP-ranked teams, though, since 2019. Air Force is 3-0 against the spread as an underdog over the last three years, and they're 1-5 against the spread in the last six games this year. They did not finish very strong, that's for sure, but they have been good as an underdog, and the under for Air Force is actually 5-1 and one in their last six games. So both teams will play excellent defense. I would think that that game will be a low-scoring affair. The famous Idaho Potato Bowl is Georgia State against Utah State, another toss-up. Utah State, the 9-1. and 9-1 one. and one on the under in their last 10 bowl games. Total 62.5, so a big number anticipated there, and the trends for the Aggies would indicate it being a low-scoring Game. Georgia State, however, 13-4-1 against the spread in games played in November or later since 2020. So Georgia State has been a team that has traditionally finished very strong as the season's gone along. The 68 Ventures Bowl featuring South Alabama and Eastern Michigan. South Alabama is a heavy favorite in this game, but they're 2-10 against the spread this year. That's tied for the worst cover percentage in the FBS, and they're 0-6 against the spread in the last six games. That's the longest cover losing streak in the country tied with Buffalo and Louisiana Tech. Eastern Michigan is 3-0 and against the spread as a double-digit underdog this year. You, South Alabama, 
one and six against the spread as a double digit dog. And the over has hit in each team's last three bowl games. So that thing could be a little high scoring, but it would indicate at the moment that Eastern Michigan would be the side to play. The SRS Distribution Bowl, I look forward to being on the call for this one. So hopefully you will tune in. Uh, SRS Distribution Las Vegas Bowl. I'm sorry, that's Utah against Northwestern. Utah is a slight favorite in this game. Northwestern has covered six straight games. It's the longest active cover streak in the country. It's tied with Ball State as the longest active cover streak in the country. And Utah is one and four in bowl games against the spread against Big Ten opponents. Uh, that includes an outright loss to Northwestern as a six and a half point favorite in 2018. So something to take in mind there. And then finally, the easy post Hawaii Bowls be Coastal Carolina against San Jose State. San Jose State is a double digit favorite in this game, and they are eight, three, and one against the spread this season. That's the fifth best in college football. And Coastal Carolina in bowl games in their history have not been very good. They're 0-3 against the spread, but all three of Coastal Carolina's bowl games in the past have gone over. The over is 3-0 in games involving them. So good luck to everybody. Be responsible and have fun consuming some of these bowl matchups. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We so appreciate all of you that have been coming and listening to the show. Our numbers have gone up like crazy this entire season. So here, centering around this holiday season, Merry Christmas to all of you from us. Happy holidays to all of you from us. We are so incredibly grateful for the support that you guys have shown the Always College Football brand this entire season. For those of us that, that have been with us from the beginning, since July of last year, you have no idea how much your numbers and your contribution to the show have benefited all of us. We very, very much appreciate you and know that we hope that you have a safe and healthy and happy and fulfilled holiday season from all of us here at Always College Football. For Mark, Jake, Jack, the other Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have an incredible day, and remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.